If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty. And I'm Andrea Dresch. And we're two political reporters here in D.C. who are going to do something radically different. We're not going to obsess about Donald Trump. That's right. Here at McClatchy, we have eyes and ears on the ground in 30 newsrooms across the country, keeping up with the voters who will determine this fall's election in November. So we've been talking for a few months here at Beyond the Bubble about our project ground game at McClatchy, tapping into the resources of our newsrooms across the country to figure out what's going on in this election before election night. And today, we're going to put it to the test. We have some of our intrepid ground game reporters in studio for once, Alex Forty. Andrea, it is a pleasure to talk with you on this special episode of Beyond the Bubble. And extra special, Katie Glick. Hi, so great to see you guys in person. Thanks for having me. So we're going to walk through some of Alex and Katie's favorite races, but not just favorite races, ones that say something a little bigger about the map. Right. Hopefully, this is something that as you listen to this the day before or day of the election, you'll get an idea of what races to watch in particular to know what's really happening in the big picture on November 6th. This will really inform your water cooler discussion the next day at work. It's exactly. We're here to help you with your water cooler discussion. Do people gather around water coolers anymore? I feel like this is, it's like help you with your like internal G-chats or something. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Your hot takes on Twitter as you're watching the results come in. Your your Facebook posts to impress your parents or friends. Just copy what we're saying and just take it and, and pass it off as your own. We don't mind. The Michigan legislature and the... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We might get a little all wonky comes down on you. To. Katie, do you want to start us off? Sure. So the first one I'd love to talk about is North Carolina 9. This is with Democrat Dan McCready and Republican Mark Harris? Absolutely. It is uh, a Charlotte area district that is a longtime Republican stronghold. We started taking a look at this district months and months ago um, because sources on both sides of the aisle told us that this is the kind of district that would only be in play if a wave election is a real possibility. Um, The latest public polling we've seen does show the Republican up, but at the same time, it is very much in play, which suggests that there is still that possibility of a wave election uh, still alive, although uh, obviously... That's a dynamic that's changing by the day. Um, But what's really interesting also about this race is the Democratic candidate. Dan McCready, he is one of many top Democratic recruits who fits into the mold of someone who projects a very moderate image, someone um, who has said time and again that, that he would not support Nancy Pelosi. I've said since day one I will not vote for Pelosi. I've not taken a dime of her money. And he is a veteran, um, all characteristics shared by a lot of top Democrats running across the country. I was going to say, I mean, for all the the justifiable hype for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Ayanna Presley, the average Democratic nominee in these battleground districts, Katie, is a lot closer to Dan McCready than it is to Ocasio-Cortez. Right. And the majority is not going to be won or lost in Boston or in New York City. The majority, and it may also not be won or lost uh, in suburban Charlotte, which, which, you know, historically is so conservative. But broadly speaking, in a lot of the most competitive races in the country, um, whether that's in New Jersey, whether that's in Kentucky, whether that's in Illinois or California, um, we are seeing 
seeing um, some of these top tier candidates who are embracing that that kind of more moderate approach were playing out their military background, you know, at a time when, you know, historically, at least, you know, the last 10 years, or so, you know, 10 plus years, Republicans have been the ones who have, you know, tried to sort of corner the market on being, you know, the party of national security. And we see a lot of Democrats trying to change that this cycle. It's, it's funny because every Republicans had been concerned the incumbent there, Robert Pittenger, actually lost a primary. And there had been concerns about Mark Harris, but it seems like those concerns have, have faded despite he having kind of a hard edge cultural background uh, as, a, as a pastor. Well, and the flip side of the, the story in this district is very interesting because it is also reflective of what we're seeing in a lot of races across the country, which is uh, polls suggest Republican voters are starting to come home, especially in a lot of these districts that have a lot of Republican DNA, haven't voted for a Democrat in years. You know, over the last uh, month, six weeks, you know, polls have suggested that these Republican voters who maybe were tuned out, maybe were not super enthused about voting, Um, are suddenly paying more attention. All right, Alex, what have you got? I've got something that's a little bit more central, I think, to the the Democrats' path to the majority. Pennsylvania's first congressional district, a matchup between Republican incumbent Brian Fitzpatrick and Democratic challenger Scott Wallace. This district is always, almost every election, seen as a bellwether. I know Pennsylvania is the kind of district that if Democrats are able to win here, it is proof of pretty close to a, there is at least a suburban wave across the country. This is not the kind of district, this isn't like a district like Virginia's 10th district or Colorado's 6th district that are really like pretty solidly blue leaning in every way at, at, at this point. This is more middle class, this is more moderate, and it has an incumbent, a Republican incumbent, Brian Fitzpatrick, who's really entrenched. He's won some labor support. His brother had actually been the congressman before that and had been an exceptionally strong congressman and to the point where he, so Brian Fitzpatrick replaced him in 2016 and Democrats actually tried to run ads against him reminding voters, he's not his brother, people. He's actually not his brother. Obviously, it didn't work then. And to me, if you're able to beat an incumbent like this, it's proof that the environment is just too much for Republicans in, in all kinds of suburbs right now. We should point out, I mean, the, even the Democratic candidate now, he's a self-funder, which helps a lot, but he also has some baggage. He's from Maryland, <laughs> basically. Um, you know, is, this is not exactly an ideal candidate. Again, he's able to put in a lot of money to his own campaign, which helps a lot. But this, to me, is like a, a like a classic bellwether that everyone can pay attention to in, in November. Well, Alex, you spent some time there. What are some of the maybe the most concerning and the most promising things that you heard from Democrats in this district that represents the heart of their map this cycle? Well, I, I, I think there were some concerns, at least initially, about the nominee. You know, as again, we had all of these Democratic primaries, and and by and large, Democrats got the candidates that they were were hoping for, right? Like a lot of the the fears of these sort of races, where we played, you know, there weren't a bunch of Democrats demanding impeachment or saying single payer or bust. Um, they got the kind of candidates that they wanted. It's just in this district, maybe he probably wasn't the the first pick, right? You know, and it's actually one of the rare districts where he saw uh, a man uh, defeat a woman in a Democratic House primary, you know, in a, in a matchup like that. So it, it that those are some of the the concerns. But again, looking at a way of election, candidate quality doesn't necessarily matter as much. And I think that's what Democrats are counting on here. So there one other thing to add about Wallace that maybe underlines some of his concerns about candidate quality. He was at a debate at a synagogue, 
And, you know, he, as happens in debates, believe it or not, his Republican opponent was critical of him. <laughs> and Wallace let loose with an expletive that we will certainly not release on this show. He didn't <laughs> okay. say fudge. You could probably figure it out. Totally surprising moment in any sort of debate, um, much less one um, in a house of worship. Um, so that's interesting. Now, wait a minute. This was, I remember stories about this at the beginning of the cycle that Democrats couldn't stop cussing on the trail. Well, and in fact, he just Alex didn't get the memo until the end. Right here. <laughs> as a primary strategy, yes. not a general election. Alex <laughs> had such a good story about all the, these Democrats, um, you know, trying to prove, you know, that they were just as angry as the rest of the progressive base had and, you know, did it by cursing, right? There were, those, were, those were carefully scripted moments mm. from Tom Perez or Kirsten Gillibrand. Um, I don't think that this was a carefully scripted moment. Right. In fact, I think he apologized. Uh, any, anyway, I mean, it, it kind of underscores, you know, that, that maybe the candidate isn't exactly what Democrats want, but in a way of election, if that's in fact what we're having, we don't know. This is the kind of district that, where that could carry him across the finish line. So my next race is going to piggyback a little bit off of what Alex was mentioning. Florida 26, contest between Carlos Curbelo, the Republican, and he's an incumbent congressman, and Debbie Mukarsel Powell, the Democratic challenger. Um, so, you know, certainly, broadly speaking, if there is to be a wave election and there's all kinds of evidence that, that we can talk about that suggests that maybe that's not happening, maybe it is. Maybe uh, some candidates do matter less, but when you are the party in power that is facing some significant environmental challenges, there are a lot of folks who would argue that candidate quality actually matters a lot. It just feels like this is a race Democrats need to win. I mean, I, I look, I, I know you're absolutely right. Like Carlos Cabello is a strong incumbent, but it feels like ever since Debbie Mercosel Powell was able to win the nomination that the race has tightened. You know, they were able to Absolutely. run TV ads. Because, I mean, uh, like a couple months ago, we were looking at this race possibly sliding off the map. I think Cook Political Report mm-hmm. had shifted it to lean Republican, as a matter of fact. Now the race appears, I think, you know, the New York Times is polling. Has her up. It has has her up. You know, I mean, it is. it, it just feels like if this is a wave election, they have to be able to win in places where Hillary Clinton won big. Right. You know, and it's just the math. You know, we know this is going to be a tight election. You can't afford to let uh, seats like this slip by. And after this election, we're going to have some vigorous leadership battles on Capitol Hill. If you're missing people like Carlos Cabello or Will Hurd or these like future of the party leaders, that's going to be a hole in the bench going forward for Republicans. All right. So speaking of future leaders, Alex, take us over to California 10. Are you calling me a future leader? Or are you saying one of these candidates could be a future Maybe leader? Maybe I'll give you GOP? your podcast one day and you're you can be a leader here again. <laughs> so California 10, which is in the state's Central Valley around Modesto, features a matchup between Republican incumbent Jeff Denham and Democratic challenger Josh Harder. You know, I was there um, in uh, actually the spring um, and Democrats hadn't even picked their nominee at that point. They ended up selecting Josh Harder, who is just a mere 32 years old, uh, seems young for Congress. And I say that because I'm I am 32 years old, but maybe it is not exactly all that young anymore. And the thing that struck me when I was in Modesto is two things. One is a theme of this podcast, I think, that Jeff Denham, again, the incumbent who was a state lawmaker before he joined Congress, has a real connection with his community. When you're out campaigning with him, he's not even really talking about national issues. He's talking about water. Um, He's talking about access to water, which is a huge issue in the agricultural heavy Central Valley in California. And, you know, he's the kind of guy who in a normal election shouldn't lose and shouldn't lose to someone like Josh Harder in a in a difficult environment. The, the calculus changes. And I know, look, 
so let's put that incumbent part aside. We've talked about that on this podcast already. The part that I think is interesting about this district is the Latino vote. This is obviously, again, a district with a lot of Hispanic voters. And there have been real questions about whether or not those voters are going to turn out for Democrats on Election Day. You know, I would say a couple months ago, Katie, there was some skepticism or concern maybe from from Democrats. I don't know if that's too strong a word. A couple weeks ago. A couple a couple weeks ago. There have been some signs lately that that is ticking up the Wall Street Journal NBC poll that came out in October showed I think interest in the the midterm election was at 71 percent. Latinos, there's some signs in recent public polling, again, going back to the New York Times Siena polls that we all talk so much about that Latino engagement is increasing and that Democrats are winning a greater and greater share. So if you're looking for a district that Democrats have to be able to win, make sure that the Latino vote turns out. This is really that that kind of a district, not unlike Florida 26, Katie. I mean, obviously, a large Hispanic presence there in that district. You know, this is still, it's not true everywhere in the map of 2018, but the Hispanic vote still incredibly important uh, for, for Democrats. Absolutely. And in a number of these races where there are large Latino communities, exactly Florida 26 or the denim seat that, that you were just mentioning, it does seem like some of these races are, are tightening in a way that they did not appear to be over the summer. Right. Absolutely. Right. We would have thought that the Democrats map would lean really heavily on a lot of districts with a heavy Latino population. It's something that Democrats talked about as soon as Trump took office. But uh, having had the luxury of covering Texas for the past year, you get the counter argument from Republicans that Latino voters really do care about a large swath of issues that A, put them at odds with the Democratic Party in some places, but B, local issues that somebody like Denim's talking about water are more relevant to their lives. Right. You know, and, and Denim has made a real push to try to reach out to this community. He actually speaks Spanish. Mm. Um, I have even heard from some of his Democratic opponents, his Spanish is pretty good. Wow. Actually. Yeah, no, he has um, people with staff like to joke that when his Latino constituents see him and they say no habla inglés, when he comes to talk to them, he starts speaking Spanish to them and they're always a little surprised by that. Um, you know, he's someone who went on Tucker Carlson's show and really went with the Fox News host about DACA and yeah. about immigration. Not exactly the sort of thing you see many Republicans doing these days. And in fact, there's even still some lingering concern that his Republican support is not exactly where it should be in the district because of that. He actually didn't fare all that well in the June 5th primary, um, really because of of immigration, lost a lot of support to a challenger with basically no money or very little name recognition. So something, uh, something to watch, too. I mean, we saw this in 2016, right, Andrea? People like... Kelly Ayotte or Joe Heck, um, who kind of betrayed the Republican line, on, in that case on Trump, ended up losing, even though you thought they were trying to reach out to the middle. That, that strategy backfired on Right. Him. And Trump may be the thing that's most important to the base, but second to that, probably immigration. He broke from the party on the now biggest issue to the base. Well, and we've heard that that has presented a challenge for a number of other uh, Republicans, even running in moderate suburban districts. And, and But I know Kansas 3, my uh, home district, uh, has come up a lot on, on this show. And just Yoder, the, the incumbent, is actually getting squeezed from the right on immigration, which helps uh, contribute to some of the poll numbers. That, that he's seen that, that suggest a, a challenge on November 6th. 
My last district um, is a district, Andrea, I know that you know well, uh, Texas 7. Uh, Alex's hometown. Oh, everybody knows Texas 7 I, well. I, I grew up in Texas yes, 7th District, exactly. and my parents still live there, as a matter of fact. Okay, so... You're dear to the hearts of this show. Exactly. <laughs> Texas 7, a friend of this podcast, this this district. Uh, the contest between uh, incumbent John Culberson, and Democrat, who's a Republican, and Democratic challenger Lizzie Panel Fletcher. Um, I was just in Texas in this district, which is a place that President Trump also just visited. Um, I should point out Katie brought back some delicious cookies for the, uh, for the newsroom from, yes. from, from Texas, the 7th District. Three Brothers Bakery, I believe, is the name. It was delicious. They were hit hard by by Hurricane Harvey, so glad to, to be able to support them as they kind of eat work local. their way back. Eat yes, local. read local, eat local. Exactly. Um, but, you know, what was really interesting about this district, it does embody so many of the challenges that Republicans running in these kind of more moderate and also diversifying suburban districts face all across the country. But the reason I specifically wanted to bring this up was because um, President Trump was just in Houston, you know, right there. This will be the election of the caravan, Kavanaugh, law and order, tax cuts and common sense. That's what it is. But Culverson, the, the Republican incumbent, did not, in fact, attend Trump's rally, which really does underscore just how difficult the president has made this environment um, for a lot of these candidates running in, in suburban districts. And I got the chance to catch up with the congressman, and, and I asked him, why is this race so tight this year, um, and in contrast to many of his previous races? And he did say that, you know, the president is a very polarizing person. People either love him or hate him, but you know, he's brought out some really strong feelings uh, in the district, and, and you know, this is a, a district where the president does have a lot of detractors, even in Texas. John Culberson was one of those Republican incumbents who some party strategists, at least last year, were pointing to as someone who had fallen down on the job mm-hmm. as they hadn't been raising money, hadn't been reaching out to constituents. What's the word on him now? Has he been able to right the ship? There are still complaints that, that you hear about him uh, in Washington. I mean, he was just, again, outraised by his uh, Democratic uh, challenger, as have so many Republican incumbents uh, been this cycle and, and especially this last quarter. But, you know, one thing that is interesting to watch there is that, um, going back to that that New York Times uh, Siena poll, you know, it, it shows a really close race, but it does show him up just a little bit. And, you know, of course, uh, we understand margins of error. That, that still means it's very much in play. But at the same time, you know, I heard just in, in spending a little bit of time down there that, you know, over the last month we have seen some Republicans start to come home for him as well. And, but I think the surprising part is that you have lots of Republicans running for re-election in districts that Hillary Clinton won, and he's really the only one who's been put on the spot like that in the final weeks at a like to not attend a rally with Trump. And like his neighbor to the north, Pete Sessions, Hillary Clinton carried that district by three points, and he's rallying with Mike Pence. He's you know there's no distance there. Trump, I think uh, America First actually ran some ads for him there. This is a really like interesting approach. It's maybe what we thought other Republicans would be doing at this point, but like he's one of the few that's actively distancing himself that much from Trump. Well, and it's a challenging calculation for a lot of these members who uh, absolutely need um, as energized a Republican base as possible to actually turn out for them. And of course, we know that nobody energizes the Republican base uh, like President Trump. But at the same time, um, you know, you talk with Republican pollsters who say that, you know, if Trump is under 50 in your district, you know, you need to not appear with him because, you know, the, you do generate, um, you know, some potentially damaging headlines for, for yourself. Um, and of course, that hasn't stopped other members from from doing that anyway. In, in some circ- 
circumstances. But um, but it's a really challenging calculation, um, and uh, I don't know that we know yet what what ends up being the smartest bet. I, I'm just going to say that if Republicans do lose their House majority, you're going to hear an awful lot about Republican incumbents who weren't up to the job. Um, and, and there's oh, yeah. ev- everyone's always looking for scapegoats, right? And it's a tricky thing, like you just said, Katie, to point the finger at Donald Trump, at least on the record. And so it makes it a little easier to, to point the finger at someone like John Culberson and say, well, he, you know, he screwed up. Uh, in the years before his competitive campaign, and that's why he ended up losing. And at the same time, if you talk to some of these members, some privately, some publicly, you know, when they have moments of candor, they will say, you know, the president dominates this environment more than anybody else. And that's going to end up being really helpful um, for Republicans in some races because we've seen the president's approval numbers actually tick back up quite a bit. Um, and in other races, uh, you know, it may just be very difficult to escape uh, the, the sort of polarizing effect that, that he has there and the, the extent to which he's been able to energize Democrats. So, Alex, you're next. Wisconsin governor's race. A curveball, right? We haven't talked a lot about the Wisconsin governor's race or talked about it at all uh, on on this podcast, but it stands out to me for a couple of reasons. One, look, the, the Democrats feel good about not just their prospects in Wisconsin, but across the Midwest. Um, our colleague Adam Walner has written about this, actually, that if any... A Wisconsin re- whisperer, Adam w- Walner. Wisconsin whisperer. Let's not flatter him, but, um, <laughs> you know, that the, of any region in the country, actually, it's the Midwest that Democrats feel best about right now. And that's, I think, surprising in some ways, because, of course, this is an area that swung pretty heavily for Donald Trump, whether it was Wisconsin or Michigan or, of course, Pennsylvania, um, Ohio, Iowa. All of those are, are states where Democrats think they can really have some statewide success, including in the Wisconsin governor's race. Now, this is a matchup, of course, between the feels like longtime incumbent Scott Walker, who's seeking his third term, um, and the Democratic nominee, uh, Tony Evers. And the thing that stands out, look, Scott Walker is a, obviously a prominent figure in his own right, and I'm just kind of transfixed by his political arc, his career arc right now, right? Because he obviously had a huge victory in 2010, was part of the red wave that year, immediately became a villain to Democrats, a hero to Republicans for really kind of defanging a lot of the public unions in that state. He won a recall. He he won in 2014 easily. And then he ran for president, right? And this guy was someone who looked like he was raring to take over the GOP. And he flamed out. Katie's already, Katie's literally shaking her head right now about, about Scott Walker's career. And he flamed out, of course, in the, the presidential primary. And extremely, it's Extremely, extremely quickly, but yes. Extremely, extremely quickly. And now he's in for the fight of his political life in Wisconsin. And, and it's just, it's fascinating to me. And it, it just shows, look, it's almost something we don't talk about enough. But look, Scott Walker is obviously a, has a strong candidate and has had a lot of success. And I don't want to take it away from him. But there's a difference when you run in 2010 and 2014 than it is in running in the year 2018. Um, And this is true, not just of Scott Walker, but someone like Rick Scott. And to me, look, both of those candidates could win, Scott and Walker both. But it is a test, a true test of their, their political acumen, their political appeal that if they can win in a difficult environment, it's a very difficult thing than winning in 2010 or 2014. And that's that to me is what's interesting is really a test of their their political skill. 
sounds like a good 2020 primer. The so you won back home in Wisconsin, but does that prepare you for presidential contest? If you're not the person who's like getting off the trains and taking questions from reporters every day, you're like living in a bit of a different world. Right, right. And he uh, he found that out the know, hard way. He found that out the hard way. He ran face first into the Trump train and uh, <laughs> in 2016. Um, and and we'll see. And look, it's it's obviously sets up to 2020. You know, and if Democrats have success in the Midwest, the natural question is then becomes can whoever the Democratic presidential nominee continue that momentum? We should point out, of course, that that was not the case for Mitt Romney in 2012, despite the fact that Republicans had this backlash in 2010. Obama still won Wisconsin. He still won Michigan. He still won Pennsylvania. So that's that's obviously um, of, of note, but it is something that we're going to be taking a hard look at the next couple of years. So, point of ground game was to help us up our our predictive skills. We all said we were not in the business of making predictions, but here we are the day before the election. You've been out on the ground talking to voters for a few months now. Can you give me your under over on seats in the House? I think it's purely the majority. I think it is clear that Democrats can still fall short of that. I don't think it's likely, but to me, the most likely scenario is a win in the majority, but a narrow win that's going to make some Democrats awfully nervous Tuesday night. Katie, what do you got? I would say that I remain not in the prediction business, but based on reporting and what smart sources on both sides of the aisle tell us, uh, it does seem like the most likely scenario is is a very narrow Democratic majority, uh, in which case that makes a very interesting 2020 dynamic um, because you're going to have a lot of disagreements between these candidates over what is the reason um, behind the Democratic victory, why wasn't it bigger, what's the theory of the case, you know, progressives versus, you know, some of these, you know, Dan McCready types. And, and a lot of that is going to be dependent on, on who wins. Um, but, um, you know, what I do know is there's a lot of uh, Democratic presidential hopefuls who will be carefully parsing uh, the results, whatever they are, and, and you know, trying to find their theories of, the, of the, their own presidential bids, um, you know, sort of spelled out uh, in the 2018 midterm results. Right. I feel sorry that the two of you are off to a really boring presidential race while I'll be here with this fun battle in the House. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be back. There you have it. There's the outlook for the 2018 midterms. We'll be back with a special episode of Beyond the Bubble to put these predictions to the test later this week. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyond the bubble pod tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states we might even ask you to call into the show and check us out on apple podcasts tune in stitcher or whatever podcast app you use we want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating talk Talk to to you you next week. week